This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Tzviki Rubenfeld in honor of his son, Avigdor's Bar Mitzvah. If anyone would like to support this, uh, the podcast or to sponsor an episode, please email me, svarimchatter at gmail.com or check out the website, svarimchatter.com. And if anyone has any questions, comments, or feedback, please email me, svarimchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined once again by Moshe Maimon, and we'll be discussing uh, the Sefer Magal Toiv of the Chida, Chaim Yosef David Azulai. Uh, Magal Toiv is the Chida's diary or his travelogue of his travels as a Shadar, which he was a Shliach, he was a Tzedakah collector, in other words, for Israel, for the community of Hebron. Um, and we'll, there's two new editions which was published, one by Machon Amar, one by Machon uh, Heirmi Mizrach. Um, which we'll call the Raviv edition after the editor, and we'll talk more about it. There's also an English translation that was published many years ago that's not available right now. And we'll be discussing these two new editions as well as the safe, you know, the actual safe for the diary and what it's about. So, so with that, uh, thank you, Ramesh, for joining me once again. Thank you very much, Naki. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to interact with your listeners, to talk about things that we all love, and hopefully uh, we can uh, enlighten some people in the process. Okay, so we're going to start off with a brief bio of the Chida. There's, for those familiar, uh, Mayor Benayahu has a famous book. It's not two volumes through Masada of Cook. I think it's still available on the Chida for those interested. There's been a lot written on the Chida, who was a massive Talmud Chacham, a noted historian, bibliophile. He was, he was, I don't know, collected book, but he was a, you know, a man of many talents. But just in brief, to start off with those that aren't familiar, you know, where, where is he from, when was he born, and, and who did he learn under, and that kind of thing. The Chido was born to a uh, Sephardic family, a famous, famous rabbinic family that originally from Spain had, had gone to Morocco. The Chido's grandfather was a very famous Rav uh, who had emigrated to Yerushalayim, Rabbi Avram Azulay, he's the author of the Chesed Avram, uh, and, other, and other Pirushim in Kabbalah, very famous rabbi. The Chido's maternal grandfather who I don't, he, he did not know, I don't believe, but his name was Rabbi Yosef Bialer. He was from the Aliyah of Rabbi Yehuda Chassid that had come up in the early 1700s to Yerushalayim. So his mother was Ashkenazi, but at that time this, the Ashkenazim who had come to Yerushalayim were subsumed under the broader Sephardic community, and the Chida was raised completely Sephardic. He viewed himself as a Sephardi, and that was the, the community he grew up in, in the community of Yerushalayim. He learned at the feet of some of the greatest Rabbonim of his time, his Rebbe is uh, Rav Yonah Navon, the author of Nechla Bakesef, uh, maybe a relative of the, of the Machin Ephraim who bears the same last name, but not, not, uh, not, not I don't think it's a direct uh, relative. But uh, he was a very big rabbi, and the Chida always refers to him as his Rebbe. He had learned by other Rabbanim as well, who he doesn't call his Rebbe per se, but he had learned at the Arachayim HaKadosh, and he had learned at the, the Batei Kahuna, the, who was the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, and many others. And uh, the Chida has a penchant for quoting things that he had learned, and he is a repository of, of information from Rabbanim that would otherwise be very little known, but they were tremendously great figures, and we know them through the Chida. And so he's a... Uh, he's, Brought up in that very rich environment in the 1720s. And uh, at the young age of 30, he was such a prodigy that he was chosen to represent the community, the Jewish communities of the four major cities, which are Yerushalayim, Hebron, Tiberia, and Safat. And he was chosen to represent them and go on the Shlichas, which we'll talk about soon, what that means. But he was chosen to represent the Jewish community and collect the funds 
that the diaspora would contribute yearly for the upkeep of the Jewish community in, in Israel. And, that, and because of his personality and his appeal and his background and, and, and of course, his erudition, he was chosen to represent them. And that is the subject of his, uh, his Ma'agal Tov, his, his travel log, which discusses those journeys. Tonight, we're going to focus primarily on the first journey, which takes place in the 1750s. And maybe in a future episode, we can talk about later journeys and, and later episodes in the Chidah's life. But for now, we're going to focus on the early part of his life. Yeah, 1753 to 1758, um, especially because, first of all, just the Raviv edition is published only, he so far only did volume one, which is this. And just in general, I think stylistically, they're different, the two parts. And it's really almost two books in one. It's two different trips. And there's enough in the first trip to discuss. And we can discuss, you know, even though I already mentioned here, the Hamar edition is the whole thing, plus more in the, in, more in the actual volume. And the Raviv edition is only half. So you mentioned he's a, he's a Shadar. I mentioned the Shleich Rachmana. I think so. It's called the Shadar. Avram Yari has a two-volume book, Mosadar of Cook, about anyone interested in the history of Shadarim. So what is a Shadar, and you know what was their function, and just the basic history of, of of Shadarim? The Shadarim were an institution. I think I think actually means the Shluchat the the, the 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 messenger, the agent of the rabbis in Jerusalem. Um, but his the job was to, like I said, to represent the Jewish community and very importantly to collect the funds from uh, that were raised in the diaspora because the Jewish community in Eretz Israel was not self sufficient. I mean, it's it was they, very often they were there on the on the sufferance of the Muslims themselves and otherwise they had very very little opportunity for income, very little opportunity for for jobs and other you know certainly no agriculture. So the only way they could live was by the support and largesse of their brothers abroad. And, uh, and, the, and the communities abroad generally felt it was a tr- tremendous privilege to be able to support the, the Jewish presence in, in Yerushalayim and Eretz Yisrael. So they would contribute yearly sums, general sums for the communities, collective communities, and some they were also smaller uh, funds set up for individual cities. And these funds had to be collected by uh, these these traveling emissaries who would go on uh, and, and pick up the money, pick up the pledges, mark them down in their journal, forward the necessary funds to the central location where they would then be distributed. Now, there was some disarray with this system, which, uh, you know, and Yari charts the system basically from the, the 1500s is where, as the Ottoman Empire, you know, became strong in the region, uh, the system became uh, more firmly established it reached its peak in the 1700s, which is the period under discussion here, and um, it kind of fell apart, you know, in the 1800s, although the need never uh, ceased completely. But the, the central government did stop because of the disarray in the early part of the 1700s, which was a result of the aforementioned Aliyah of Rabiuda Hassan. So that's why the, uh, the authorities in, in, uh, in Constantinople, the Jewish authorities, took matters into their own hands and they said, we're going to bring uh, some order to this system. Everything's going to go through us. We are going to appoint messengers. We're going we're to oversee the distribution of funds and that will make things uh, work a lot better. Uh, important to note at this juncture, why precisely it fell into disarray. One of the main factors was because of these thousand or so Ashkenazim who had emigrated to Yerushalayim and been subsumed under the same community, they, can, they, they continued to function as somewhat of their own community. And there was some, uh, you know, some inner strife about the distribution of funds. They felt maybe they weren't being properly compensated. They deserved a, a larger amount. 
and therefore they would try to raise funds themselves, which would cause you know the communities that would otherwise contribute to the broader fund of the general community were now not giving. And um, the the worst part of it was that they were not able to to support their lifestyle, and they incurred tremendous debts. And in Yerushalayim at those times, under the cruel Muslim authorities, if debts weren't paid, they would take instead a pound of flesh. And uh, and and you'll see time and again that the Shadarim refer to the support of of the of the community in Yerushalayim not only as tzedakah but also as pidyon shvuyim because they were literally held captive and their lives were often in danger. And that is why the we all know about the Chor of Rabbi Yehuda Chassid. The Chor of Rabbi Yehuda Chassid refers to the shul established by the Ashkenazim. Talmidim of this Rabbi Huda Chassid, and that shul was dismantled and destroyed when the community could not make good on their debts, and that is why they see, there ceased to be a uh, uh, independent Ashkenazi identity at that time, uh, which is why, which was what led to the the, the uh, authorities in Turkey setting up a new system where everything was centrally managed and overseen, and at that point, that's which is what gave you know that, that gave this mission a lot of success, and that's why it reached its peak in that century. Right. And and now something is, especially as we get to Germany, that he does travels, we're going to see this is part of the issue that comes up again and again. Is I mean, even people today are familiar. Someone goes collecting, they have a Tuda, right? It's called, they come to the thing and they, you know, that they're reliable. So this was a problem then. You didn't know who the Shleich was. He's coming, he's collecting for Hevron, for Shalayim, for Tisro, who, who, who is he? And in Germany, especially, they harassed the Chida and they made his life miserable and they didn't want to give him money, as we'll see. He's constantly complaining about this. It was very hard for him. And they would have to sh- compare. I think we talked to him. We did an episode previously where we once discussed one of these books where they would have the, the name signed. Were they able to recognize the name? Was it was a different rub signed the name that he was a reliable person? Would have to have the recommendation. I think he calls it in the book a lot of recommendation. He writes it in the Hebrew. So you know, we'll discuss. This is how this new system was set up, and this there actually was maybe a charlatan involved that that caused people not to believe in the shadarim, and that's why the chidah had problems. So we'll discuss more about this. So. As we, as we mentioned, we're discussing the first travel, which is in starts in 1753 and it ends in 1758. Um, the Raviv edition, I think it's from the Benio book, maybe, that prints very nicely in the front, right? When you open a, in the front flap, I guess, in the front and the front two pages, there's a map showing and then numbered 1 to 143, exactly where he went, each stop, each city that he went to with like arrows on a map for those familiar. So just a map from Eretz Yisrael as he went through Europe and... Yeah, we'll, we'll discuss the different places that he went to. I did study that map, and I can assure you that it was taken from the Benayahu edition because uh, there are certain cities that Benayahu left out by mistake, and <laughs> they're left out in this edition as well. Although he did make some emendations later based on uh, other corrections that he notes in his footnotes, but uh, those omissions were copied. So I, I, I am pretty confident in saying that he did take it from the Benayahu edition. Okay, so we're going to talk mainly about the Sefer. And I think at the end, we'll discuss more of the review or critical review of the two editions um that just came out but i think i think to start just so, so an overview of the of the safer let's just talk uh, just briefly of the safer to start um how, how does he do each entry it's it's a diary when people are familiar with the diary um how, how does he do each entry um and um actually before before that before that i think we should discuss the history of the safer i don't know why i'm jumping the gun about the we should discuss the basic when was this written to the Chidah? So for those in the Hamars now redoing all the volumes of the Chidah, and this is volume 50. And there's more Sfarim in these volumes. He, he does many Sfarim. 
But the history of the Sefer was these were one of the ones that wasn't published in his lifetime. So they both recount in their introduction just briefly. So I think we should talk about just the, the, the Sefer for a second, even though I know we're going to hopefully not get people too confused. We'll talk more about it at the end. But just we're talking about this diary. So the publication history was this wasn't – when did the Chidor write this? And when was it actually first published? So it's it's an interesting uh, question because there, there hasn't – it never has been decided decisively exactly when he wrote it and how he wrote it and why he wrote it. But after studying it carefully over the last little while, um, I'm pretty sure that I, I got the idea now that the Chida did not write. This was not, in other words, this is not the diary that he would jot down every night. The, what he would write every night, he kept log books and, uh, and he'd, where he'd write everything. He, he, was, he would process his information with writing. And that's anything new, anything he thought, anything significant that he saw or heard, especially manuscripts that were not readily available. He'd copy over the passages that he wanted. He'd keep these all in, in journal after journal after journal. And a lot of these journals have survived, which is how we're able to piece together his method. So the Chida was, would just write. He would write and write and write. And, and people ask, why would the Chida even write a, a memoir? It's so it's such an unusual thing to do. And the answer is, in, in my mind... I mean, he, the Chida himself notes some of the purposes and benefits of, of, of putting, you know, this journal together and, and not to take away from those benefits. One of the main ones is to give praise to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the Nisim and the Niflos and, and, the, and, and all the kindness that he experienced, he feels he has to acknowledge, and that's certainly one of the benefits. But that in, that in and of itself may not be enough for someone to sit down and write a memoir. It's because the Chida would process everything through writing and writing and writing and writing. So I believe that he would he, he later at some point in his journey, I believe towards the end of the journey, he took those different scraps and those different entries throughout his other ledgers and put it together in, the, in this current form that we have now. He gave it a little introduction, and you can tell by the uniform script in the manuscript, which which does still survive. There, there are two separate manuscripts. There's one for the first journey, and then there's another one for the second journey, which is a, a totally separate manuscript. So you can see from the way he wrote the manuscript that this was written to be a book. Now, did he mean to publish it is a completely separate question. And the answer there is probably not, first of all, because he did not publish it and never mentions it in his other writings. He refers sometimes vaguely to his collections, his Likutim he calls, or once in a while he refers to his, his Zichronot, his, his, his journals, which is the way they were called, like we spoke in an earlier podcast. But he, doesn't, um, he does not specifically mention the Ma'agal Tov, and the reason is probably he meant to keep this private. Now, why did he mean to keep it private? Well, his son gave a report to another shliach who then told her Yaakov Sapir, who, who told it over to the editor of Chaim Michal's Orachaim, where it was first published in the 1800s, that the reason he did not want this safer published is because it contains many disparaging references to the people who treated him less than uh, favorably, in his, in his opinion, and therefore he felt he shouldn't publish um, you know, a book which 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 does not which doesn't vote, you know speak well of other people, and that's why the son too, the son that he does son who inherited his writings and, and was the rabbi in Ancona, Rufal Yeshaya, he also didn't want it published. Although he did let excerpts be copied, which later were published in an abridged form, which is how the world first came to know about this journal in the later 1800s, when an abridged form of these these uh, of this diary came out. But later it was. Um, it was the Makitz Inner Society that published the, the work of Rabbi uh, Freiman, Dr. Freiman. He published it first in Berlin, the first journal, and then in the 20s, and then later in the 30s, he put them both together in a nice critical edition from the manuscript, and that's how we have the entire Sefer now. 
Yeah, and so the Hamar edition does talk in the introduction about Lashon Hara, it's Lashon Hara, you know Lashon Hara, so they say a lot of these people aren't around anymore, no one knows who they are, and there's more of a discussion there, I don't think we need to go so much into that, but this is the basic... It is worth mentioning one of their uh, interesting chidushim there. They have a chidush that uh, being that Lashon you know, it's not technically Lashon Hara unless you say it, therefore if you're reading this book, read it quietly, don't <laughs> read the passages that despair of you don't, don't enunciate them, and you'll be saved from uh, Lashon Hara that way. Yeah, so both editions recounted, and, and especially Raviv, he tries to be, you know, to say good on, on you know, Dr. Rabbi Dr. Freiman, he was, he was a Tom Chacham, he was a, yeah. a, a historian, so he, he that for publishing, why he published it, it's been published, you know, there, there's what to read in those introductions. Okay, so that's the overview and the basic publication history. Now, the Sefer, so you, as you mentioned, he wrote it afterwards, it, it kind of seemingly was written later, not during, but uh, dur- as each night. Now, but as you come to the Sefer, as a diary, if you're familiar with the diary, there's an entry, there's a date, and then he writes. So just structurally, and again, I don't want to, we're, we're going to get, we're gonna, after this, we're going to dive right into the actual Teich and what he says, but just structurally, one last thing, how does he date each entry, and what is he, kind of standard entry, you know, he lists, he was, this is this date, we went here, we went, a lot of the entries are just, or daily, other than the stories, it's this date, we were here, I went to this place, I went to that place, right? So in one of the words he uses to describe it himself is the Chida in, in, in his inimitable Melitza, which we will talk about later. But he talks about, uh, you know, he describes things using phrases from the Gemara, phrases from the Psukim. So he talks about this journal as it's Lemimne Yomi Lemimne Shvui. It's the count the days and count the weeks, which is the way the Gemara talks about Sirius Omer. So he's, that's how he says he was, uh, that, that's one of the purposes that he set out to accomplish with this, with this uh, diary, which is it's, it's to give an accounting of the exact dates of arrival and departure. And like we said, the Chida deemed it very significant, um, the exact log of when and where he was, because he was on a mission for the rabbis. He was on a mission for the Jews of Yushalayim, which is of paramount importance. And he felt he was fulfilling one of the, a very unique and important role, which should be documented. So largely the entries will start, this and this day I arrived here, and then this and this day I left there. And then on the way, he'll say, and I traveled with him, and I traveled with him. And while he was there, he'll say who he was hosted by in all the cities. He makes a mention of where he stayed, where he ate his meals. And, of course, in, in, in the course of uh, you know, discussing where he was, he also mentions what he had seen there. And uh, of great interest to, to, to bibliophiles is all the – there's a long list of – of manuscripts that he, you know, because of course he had a very uh, avid interest, like we mentioned earlier, in manuscripts, and he gives what he saw where, which manuscripts, and uh, some of these manuscripts do not exist today, so it's it's really a first-hand account of, of great importance. Okay, so he starts off, he's from Eretz Yisrael, as you said, so he goes from Eretz Yisrael through Mitzrayim to Egypt, then he goes, spends a decent amount of time in Italy, and then he spends a lot of time in the unfortunate uh, Germany, uh, and then he goes, there's, there's Holland, He's in England, he's in France, and then he travels through the Alps, which is quite uh, interesting, actually, his uh, experience in the snow. And he goes to Italy, then he's in Turkey, and then he ends up back in Eretz So that's just the overview of his travels, and there's a lot of cities. So, I mean, we can start uh, in the beginning. I don't know if there's anything specifically that you wanted to mention, especially as you work through the travels. But, and again, we'll get back to discussing the additions again, but just as an overview over here, not as an overview to discuss, do you want to mention anything specifically in the beginning is Nerat Stral, then he goes through Egypt and then to Italy? Is there anything specifically to mention from these places? I was very interested in uh, in the synagogues and that he that he describes in Egypt, 
which have been the, the subject of other scholarly works. There's a, there's a work, I understand, in preparation right now to discuss the, the, the various synagogues. These synagogues later became very famous with the discovery of the Cairo Geniza that were housed in various different you know, spots around Cairo. So when the Chida gets there, he identifies some of the different shuls and some of the different legends about them. And one of them, he uses a very interesting name, um, which was not understood by the, by the different editions. And that is in the, uh, the, what, what he called the Egyptian shul. The word Egyptian in this context means Cairo. Cairo, old Cairo was referred to as Al-Masar. It's uh, e- Egypt. The old Egypt is, is Cairo. So he says the Egyptian shul, which is the oldest shul in, in the vicinity, he says he, they have there the Sumbati. Now this Sumbati is not clear what it means. It might, you know, some of the frymen suggest maybe it's a vault, maybe it's a plaque, maybe, you know, people weren't sure exactly what it is. But Freiman does offer the suggestion to look in another piece of literature where, which discusses the Sumbati Codex. The Sumbati Codex is described by another scholar, the Divrei Yosef Sambari, as an ancient codex uh, in manuscript, and he describes when it was written. It's, it's, it's probably what the Chida saw or what he was describing here. And why this is of great interest to me is because we don't know where that is today. We, we're not. Sh- Today, I've, I've consulted a few scholars who were not able to positively identify the whereabouts or even the identity of this codex today. So it apparently was known in the early 1900s, but today we do not know where it is. Right. So, okay, that, that's obviously very interesting. And he talks about uh, the Rambam, the Shul. He goes through over there and he goes through the rest. So then he gets to Italy. Um, Italy, there's some really interesting parts in Italy. Um, where he's traveling through Italy, obviously, again, to so each place, he says, I went here, I went there, I traveled from here, I went, stayed with this person, this Gvir, that one. He tells you how much money he collected. Um, there's some interesting stories, and he gets to Venice, specifically, some interesting stories. I don't know if there's something else that you specifically do you want to relate from uh, over here. I want to give an overview of the, of the different communities. It's interesting to note that of all the communities that he visited in the first trip, of all the different countries he went to, in the second trip, Germany was off the map, uh, and that's just because he did not do very well in Germany. And we'll talk about why, but uh, for just to give you the overview, like you said, he started out, on, he went through Egypt. doesn't seem that uh, he did any collecting in Egypt. That was just a, a point of departure. From there, he traveled to Italy. Italy was part of the Schlichus, was part of the mission. He was largely received pretty well in Italy, although not, he still had not yet attained the fame he would later attain in Italy and, and you know he spent the rest of his life after after his second mission he spent the rest of his life in Italy because of his you know his great success there but at the you know on his first trip is where he first met people who would later become his lifelong friends and he identifies them as such and he did okay in Italy from Italy he traveled north to Austria and, and, and into Germany and the further north he got the further the further Christian it got uh, the, it became much more oppressive, both from the government authorities and even from the Jewish communities. And there's probably a link there, which, which we may explore later. And in Germany, for the large part, which is, you know, better part of two years that he was in Germany, he did not do very well at all. And the cities there were not accepting of him. They were very cheap. He talks about how miserly they were and they wouldn't pay for his cart and they wouldn't pay for his lodging. And they sometimes they wouldn't even admit him into the city with the exception of Frankfurt, where he was able to secure the approval of the Pnei Yoshua, and we'll get into that later, but the Pnei Yoshua, you know, extended his protection to the Hidah, which 
did gain him uh, favor, and, and he had met some very noble, righteous Balabatim in, in Frankfurt, and that that stood him in, in good stead in Frankfurt, at least. So that was the lone exception to an otherwise very bleak period in Germany. From Germany, he went to Holland. Holland, he was very well received. He did great in Holland. On to England, where again, he talks about how, you know, in England, it was very seasonal. If you came at the wrong time of the year, when the heads of the community wouldn't meet, they would only meet at a specific you know, pre-appointed times, a shliach couldn't do anything there. And, and, the, and the shliach who had come there before, a few years earlier, was very unsuccessful in, in London. But because, you know, he had won favor in their eyes, and by the grace of Hashem, he did manage to exceed all expectations. He did fabulously in England. From there, he went to, south to France. Then he did wonderfully in France. Uh, and then back to, to the Alps, to Italy. And then he went to Turkey, which is uh, the headquarters. So he went to Turkey to wrap up the mission. Turkey is where all the money was uh, processed. All the documents were looked over. So he spent a good amount of time in Turkey. I believe that is where he compiled the final edition of his Sefer. He saw some very fascinating sights in Turkey. He describes an actual coronation ceremony there for the new sultan in, in exquisite journalistic detail. And then uh, he wrapped up his trip there and back home to Yerushalayim. Right. So as he, so first of all, in Venice, there was the whole, first of all, there was a whole back and forth with the tax collecting, with the, with the, with the authorities that he describes in detail. He actually describes going into the, uh, in, in Venice. He's, he sees them, how they're dressed, and he sees the, the ceilings. Of course, those familiar in Italy with the, he's, he's, wow, he's from Eritrea. They don't have these kind of fancy, I guess, architecture, Italian Renaissance, uh, architecture there that he could describe. As interesting as he, as he was in the Venetian dress, it's worth mentioning that the Venetians were maybe not favorably, but they were also very interested in his dress. And one government official points out that seeing this Levantine fellow from the from the Ottoman Empire, this Jew dressed in Ottoman garb, that reminds him in his mind that he imagines that those are what the Jews looked like, the, Jew, the Jews who had killed their savior. That's what he writes, he heard from the, this fellow. So that wasn't very favorable, but uh, they, you can imagine the impression he made in full Ottoman dress, showing up in a, in, a, in a Western city like Venice. Yeah, with his turban and everything. This is on page 68 in the Reviv edition. So from there, he ends up going north through Germany, to Germany. So the interesting part is he talks about in Trento, right? He talks about Trento, he talks very interestingly about, I think that's where he goes with the, with the, with the yellow badge, with the clothing that he had to wear. The clothing, he wasn't used to this. He got in big trouble. I he does, uh, he mentions there that he was aware that Jews had told him about the badge they had only told him about the badge on the clothing, probably the, like you're saying, like the yellow badge that they wore on the, prominently on their chest. But they had not; they had neglected to mention that. Besides, for that badge of honor, it was also required to wear an identification on the head. I don't know if it meant a separate kind of hat or another badge on the hat. I'm not, it's not, he doesn't describe it clearly, but he says there, you know, there needs to be another simon on the rush, and he did not have it. And when they discovered that, they were going to fine him 100 Reichstaler, which is an exorbitant amount of money. And he, they hauled him before the magistrates, and he tried to plead his case. He said, I'm just a Jew from Jerusalem. Let me do. And that only incensed them further. What are Jews even doing in Jerusalem, defiling Jerusalem? It's a Christian city. The Jews don't belong there. So that didn't help. Then he just uh, appealed to their sense of kindness and compassion. He said, everywhere in the world knows that this government here is, is just and kind. So please, please. I'll put it on now, he says. He puts it on, look, what's the difference if I put it on now? Now I'm wearing it. So eventually they let him off with a small, uh, just a small fine. 
So I think it's when it gets to, I think, Fursi, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which the story starts on page 81 of the Raviv edition. That's really, first of all, he ends up seeing there by this uh, person that he's going to really not have anything favorable to say about it, and, except for he sees the Munich Talmud, that we're familiar today, that's a Ksaviyat of the entire Gemara in one volume. So this person, I guess, owned it. But uh, that's where he's received very not favorably, and he's really not treated well. Um Although he, Raviv mentions this in his in his footnotes, he does a good job pointing out all the places that the Chida uh, references this manuscript. Which, first of all, there's a number of places where he references different variant texts that he found in this in the Munich uh, Shas. But another thing is he discovered in the Munich Shas the Maseches Kusim, and he published he later would publish the whole Maseches Kusim based on, on on the text that he had found in this manuscript. So, and uh, Raviv points out he wasn't there for very long, and he wasn't even a welcome guest. Here, but he managed to spend the night or a little part of a day, and at, during that time he made good use of his time writing down, feverishly writing down as fast as he could uh, all the different things that he found interesting in this famous Munich manuscript, which like you said at the time was in private possession later, probably not willingly, it landed up in government possession, which fortunately for us which is, what, is why it survived till today. Right, so here he's busy with the Pinkasim, who's signed in his ledger, signing, you know, different Rabbanim would sign, and then the Rabbanim in the next town would recognize him. I think also he had the previous Shadar would give him the other Pinkasim, he would have that to show them. But it seems like they, whether they weren't recognizing the names in his, or they were just making crazy for a reason, because Raviv mentioned this, there was, there was a charlatan going around. I don't know how much that was really the case, or they just didn't want to pay him, or didn't want to recognize him, they didn't know who he were, but there was... A lot of, I don't know what the right word is here, between the Chida and the Germans that just, they didn't hit it off. Except him and the Pnei Yeshua, they really didn't hit it off well. So that episode that uh, Raviv mentions, Raviv is, I think, unduly harsh in his uh, portrayal of that other Shadar. It was an Ashkenazic Shadar by the name of Yehuda Yerucham. Um, the Chida calls him Rabbi. The Chida does not denigrate him. He wasn't happy with him, and he felt he was usurping the authority of the of the rabbis in, in going on his own mission, but he does not portray him as a charlatan. And it seems to be it's a very, very uh, testy situation because this, this shliach, this Yehudi Yerucham, was going on behalf of the Ashkenazic community, like we said, you know, just like they had the problems in the earlier part of the 1700, which are really straightened out. It seems like those problems were cropping up again. And this shliach would be going there to collect money just for the Ashkenazic community. And in Germany, which never felt fully under the authority of the Ottoman uh, administration in, in the Holy Land. So they felt, uh, you know, we can support our own. They never fully came along. And this is why the Chida, one of the reasons which contributed to his failure in Germany, although he doesn't go so far as to say that this guy was a faker. It just seems that uh, it was he was doing the wrong thing. The Chida did have letters from the Jerusalem rabbinate denouncing the mission of this but it was the Chida himself says it would not be wise for him to start this a big conflagration by bringing out those documents in which which would essentially pit the diaspora Ashkenazi community against the Jerusalem rabbinate and the Chida knew that was very bad for business so which is why he tried to uh, to keep those under wraps those documents at some point they were discovered but he managed to quiet it down before anything negative could occur. Right, so in each community he went to, he would meet with the Parnasim, with the Parnas, the, the heads of the community, the rich people try to get them to, to, to show them that he was a Shadar and they should give him money and they should send along money. And this was kind of the problem. I think it's here in Harburg, maybe one, one of these places they went and they didn't want to give him. I think at one point, I, I think the minute was, you're correct, right, they would pay for his 
then wagon, you know, his fare, his taxi cab to the next place. And some of these places they didn't want to pay. They put him on a public one. They, I think in here in this, they, they threw his stuff on into the street and they're just like, get out of here. I think there was one at a certain point, they even put him on the garbage collection yeah. wagon. Yeah. Right. In the Germany. That's they, in Harburg. Yeah. And in Harburg, he, it which is one of the Parnassim that he, he mentions by name and has nothing good to say about this fellow, how this fellow would get up early and daven early and he wanted the Chidot to do the same before they would daven in shul, just get up and leave. We're not going to help you here. He said, I can't just leave. You don't have a wagon. Yes, we do. The wagon which would carry the garbage, which meant human waste disposal as well, a very unsavory uh, mode of uh, transportation. You take this wagon out of town. And he said, no, I'm not, that's, that's not befitting. Forget my honor. That's not befitting the honor of, of, uh, of the Jews in the Holy Land. I'm on a very sacred mission here. You can't treat me this way. They just took his baggage and threw it out. So he had to hire his own wagon, he says, and uh, at great expense. But like you said, Nachi, they, that was the custom. It was accepted that the shliach, even before he would prove himself, but just out of respect for the office of the shliach, the community would would put him up, would put up the shadar, would pay for his lodging and pay for his wagon. Although in Germany, he says they wouldn't pay uh, too much of it. Sometimes they would pay for him, but not for his luggage, or they would pay for the first 15 minutes, uh, but not more than that, then the rest would be on him. He had to pay a lot out of pocket, which he talks about with uh, with great uh, frustration. Yeah, it's very, very moving here where he gets uh, tossed out. And the guy, like I said, was shredish davening. He forced him davening in the house. And he threw him out. And he said, I'm going to go. I'm going to hire. It's just really, he says, first of all, a lot of malitza. We'll get into that, which is a lot of like, flowery phrases from Sukkim and other places. But he says, He says he started crying. Crying, he goes through and he says, "It's, it's my averus, but help me." He's davening, he's crying. It's a very poignant scene. You can imagine he's 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 thirty years old. He's a he's a shliach. He's going collecting. He's away from his family, and they're just treating him like garbage. They're putting him away. There's no other way. He's, he's it's it's terrible. They obviously and 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 uh, to, to for the defense of the of the German Jews. First of all, they had. It was very difficult for them to verify his his writings. Like the Chida says, it, at one point he remonstrated with them and he tells them, "Look, I have all these letters attesting to to to, to my shlichus. I've got letters in Hebrew. I've got them in Spanish. I even have letters in Italian. So these uh, these were lang- these languages were obviously the languages that were were important for for government authorities. But the Jews in uh, in Germany had very little use for um, uh, Italian and Spanish." And the Hebrew was written in the Sephardic cursive, in the Sephardic handwriting, more often than not. And they couldn't, uh, they had a hard time deciphering them. So the Chidah says, but I have 300 such letters, and I've got letters from ambassadors, and I've got, oh, you know, I can't be making this up. But still, they were obstinate, and they would say, no, you can't prove it. And then, like we mentioned in the earlier podcast, uh, you, you know, each community, if you would look at the, the way the Shliach you know, was treated in the community before it's a community before it accepted him, so it would snowball and they would get, get him more acceptance. But if the city had gone to previously treated him poorly and they didn't accept him, so why should we accept you either? And which is why in one of the German cities, he begged and pleaded with them, don't write the amount you gave me. They gave him a few dollars. He says, just write, you gave me a donation. But one of the, he said, this fellow was a wicked man and he wrote in this, in this dirty language. He uses another Malitza to refer to the, probably to the, the Yiddish jargon that was, that was, they used there. Jargon is the, I mean, derogatorily, I mean, that's the way they refer to it in the old, the old days. So that's, uh, he says, they, so he managed to prevail upon him afterwards to cross out what he had written and just write it in a, you know, that he had given him a donation. Yeah, actually here in uh, page 101, 
uh, was in Fur where he talks about where maybe they didn't recognize they don't recognize the, 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 the one, they're not recognizing it. Again, Germany is just a lot of stories. Again, it's not only he went from one place to the next, he went in the wagon, he was traveling, how much money he got. There's a, in Germany, there's a lot of stories, just his hardships, you know, his hardships collecting money and, and what was going on, which really just continues on and on and on and on. There's just pages and pages. And it's, you know, like you said, there's obviously something that were going on with the German communities and whether it was this other shliach or they didn't recognize him who he was or what was going on, um, what the story. Also, there's somewhat of there was supposed to go through a central um, fund at this point and he didn't know what things were supposed to go through. There was some confusion, but uh, he definitely didn't have a, go, a good go of it in Germany. He didn't have a good go of it. And there's a, and there's a number of factors. Maybe that other shliach had some factors. He does not seem to attribute it too much to that uh, to that other mission. The Hida himself attributes it mostly to the nature of the people he encountered. And this is one of the reasons, again, why this manuscript was shelved. He says the nature of them, it's just the Parnassim that he encountered. These leaders of the community were not good people. He says they were miserly. They were suspicious. They were full of excuses and lies. They would promise and not give. And he, he blames the, you know, he blames them for his, for his failures. But to their defense, the Jewish communities in Germany were in a much more precarious situation than elsewhere. The government themselves was very oppressive about who could be where. There's, there's certain cities they couldn't come in after nightfall, and 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 uh, you know it's 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 like the pasuk says in Sheir Hashirim, Al Teruni A lot of the the the, the blackened face of these Parnassim was because they were blackened by the by their experiences, and it's a uh, it's it's a uh, unfortunately it's a cycle of 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 unfavorable behavior. But another another factor is, and this is uh, you know this is developed well in an article by Matthias Lehman. He he discussed this and, and he paints he paints the pattern here that the Chida was the most he was an outsider in Germany. You know the community in Italy, which is closer to the to the Ottoman Empire, is they're not Sfardim per se, although there is a large influx of Sfardim there, particularly in Livorno, where the Chida did do best. But the, there was, you know, he, 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 they were able to identify with him more. The communities in uh, Holland and in France and in England, those were pr- primarily Spanish-Portuguese communities, which, I, again, he had identified with him. But in Germany, he was an outsider. In Germany, he was a Sephardi. And, and unfortunately, the divisions of, 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 you know, of, of the time period leading up to this point in the century had made it such that they just didn't feel an affinity for, his, for him and his mission. Right, so just not to pile on one more comment, when he gets to, to Bamberg, he says, where he had one of these things, he says, he ended up talking harsher. And he goes through, and it's just interesting, he says, you know, he mentions them that he has, you know, you, you see all the signatures of Hebron, Bekushta, Constantinople, Horabani, Italia, Vachasimus, Ambassador. He says, the Ambassador Shalmelat Sarfas, the French Ambassador, Vachasimus, Reisha Kumri, Yerushalayim. He had the priests in Yerushalayim. In different languages, where's your chachma? You're smart. The Torah heichani, tziva Hashem al hanes hager kam upon matoy beinechem levazas lezalzul b'shliach eretz yisrael. And he's literally going great. Like first of all, it's like to him, it's 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 completely ridiculous. What are they even saying? What are they thinking? And it's just again, it's just hard. So until he gets at, at a certain point, um, again, there were communities. Where he did, he was well received. He repeats Torah from various people in these communities. He saw a lot of Sfarim, even in the communities like I mentioned at first, where he didn't have such a good goal of it. So there was good parts also in Germany for sure, and there were communities that gave him money. But especially one is when he gets to um, to meet the the Pnei Yeshua, 
is one especially uh, where he does have a good, um, I guess, the right way, a good go of it, I guess, right? And that, uh, that you know, the Pnei at the time was going through his own troubles. The Pnei this was at the height of the of the uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden and Rabbi Yaakov controversy, which we'll discuss later. But uh, at that time, the Pnei who had taken the position, you know, against Rabbi Yaakov had angered some of the lay leaders in, in Frankfurt, and he was forced to abdicate his position for a while and take up residence in Worms, you know, not too far away in the German city of Worms. So the Chido, when he arrived in Frankfurt, the Pnei was not in Frankfurt, the Pnei was in Worms. So he said, and, and they gave him a hard time, they said, you're not going to get anywhere in Frankfurt unless you can secure the approval of, the, of our rabbi who's now in Worms. So he traveled to Worms, and there is where he, he meets the Pnei and he's blown away by the Pnei he, he describes the Pnei as an angel of God, which is a, which is a rare, rare accolade from the Chidah. He does not use it too often, but about the Pnei he uses it here, and he uses the same term later when, in, in, when he describes him in, in the Shem Agdolim. So the Chidah is, a, he, he, he finds a kindred uh, spirit, the Talmud Chacham, who's sympathetic to him, and, and, and more, most importantly, one of the Gedoyle Hadar. And the Pnei tells him, I can't either, you know, read your, you know, your writings, but I do have a letter from Constantinople, and he compares them, and he sees they are the same, they are the same, and he, so you are justified, you, you, you are correct, you, your, your mission is true, and you are who you say you are, and I therefore do extend you my approval, my, my protection, and the Pnei Yeshua's approval was good enough for, uh, the, now, it wasn't good enough for worms, he says, the Jews and worms did not care much for it, but uh, it did carry weight in Frankfurt's, and he had a very good three-month period in Frankfurt. During this time, he repeats some of the very interesting things the Pnei Yeshua told him. He they, of course, they discussed the, the, the news of the day, which is why the Pnei was not in Frankfurt. The Pnei Yeshua probably said, you know why I'm here? And he gets into the story with him. The Chido had to be very diplomatic because the Pnei Yeshua was very angry at the, at the Turkish rabbis who write from Constantinople to try to put out the flames. What do they know? They know nothing about the situation. So the Chido says, I see, he showed me the document and I see the document and I recognize the handwriting. This is the, this is the, 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 the scribe of the Bezdin of, of Kushta, of Constantinople. But I said, maybe it's not. Maybe someone else wrote it. He said he, he knew it wasn't true, but he def- tried to diffuse the, the Pnei anger nonetheless. Right, he says, right. And, and also you mentioned, just to go back in the beginning, because this is something he says in Shem Agdalim as well, where he, the Shem Agdalim is his safer, which maybe we'll talk about a different podcast episode, where he discusses, he has two parts, where he mentions all the Rabbanim, Chachamim, Gedalim, whatever, until his time, and then there's a separate part of the Sfarim, so he says the same Lashon, where he says, So he says, Which is something, I mean, the Chidah was a massive, Tamu Chacham, Kobol, he talks to many people. I think the Pnei is the only one he says this about him. And he goes through and he tells, tells him how it would say for Pnei Yeshua and the learning in Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim and Rappaport about the Kahuna and he starts talking to him about the Pnei Yeshua. And like you said, he tells him over the whole Venice and Irish and he's, he's giving him the whole back and forth what's going on over there and the Pnei Yeshua was very, very involved. Um, for those familiar. So this was, uh, but again, he hit it off well with the Pnei Yeshua. And uh, he was successful there. So he continues through Germany. There's some other things in in, uh, in Germany, but uh, again, we're not going to go through the whole safer. One of the one of the stylistic, you know, in, you know, parts of this diary, which 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 I find very interesting, is is the he talks about the the, the lay people in Germany who in Frankfurt who he got very close to. It was uh, a father and a son, and he, he in the in the part in Germany. Although, again, he, this is written later, but he doesn't tell you 
he, he kind of foreshadows the, the tragedy that would later happen to this family, but he doesn't, he doesn't let it out until, until it happens. And he writes about how this, the Shire family, which is a famous, uh, a famous uh, communal, important communal name in, in the annals of Frankfurt Jewry, but this Shire family had taken him in. They were important. He was an important partner himself. And by them showing favor to the Chida, others wanted to follow suit. And he was invited out all the time to the various different important lay leaders in the community. But uh, these, these, these Shires, the, the, the son who was particularly helpful to, who, who, he says, the Chida, the Chida writes out, the son would follow him around and take him everywhere. And the father, who was an important person, would also help him financially. And uh, he mentions there that he had entrusted this family with his many, many books that he had bought along the way, manuscripts that he had copied, important writings, money he entrusted with them. They were supposed to send this on to, ha- to Holland, to Amsterdam for him. And uh, later, a terrible tragedy befell this family. There was a fire on Hanukkah, probably. We know why that happened. And, and uh, unfortunately, the family perished. And he thus says that I didn't know what would become. You know, my, he, first he says that the terrible terrible tragedy that it is in and of itself. And he says, and, and my personal tragedy, as well as what would become of all of the money that I had collected for the shlichas and the important valuable svarim that cannot be replaced because he was supposed to send them. Later on, when he gets to Amsterdam, see, he doesn't tell it to you now, but when he gets to Amsterdam, he talks about the miracle that the day before this e- fateful evening, Rabbi Reuven Shire did have a chance to send out all his stuff and the surviving son managed to also take care of all the money. Writes, but uh, that was one of the small miracles that did happen to him. But again, that's you know these are the, the everyday people that he encounters who had done him very very well and are mentioned very favorably in his journal. Right, that's another thing is that I mentioned a bunch of the negative that he relays, but he also he's very and Raviv emphasizes this a lot, and this is really it comes up all over. You really see it where he's always He's always giving thanks to Hashem for the good things that happen, and he really you really see that you know. The Muna and, and that, you know, thanking Hashem of, of just what was going on, what was happening to him all over. He always, he's davening, he's always saying, there's, there's times where I think he's saying, uh, is this 91 times, what is it? He's right. always davening and he's making sure there's all these things that if something was happening and the, the authorities were checking him in various places, he had money, he had things, he's not supposed to be carrying. And we'll get to this later. So he is always, that's something that's really, you really see that, that it really shines through the safer. It's really, inspiring for lack of a word to really see that so at a certain point he gets to holland and in holland there's something there this is yeah, yeah before, before you yeah. get to holland I just yeah. want to mention another very a very important episode that the in the he does life in, in germany is he meets uh, an aunt he meets a, his mother's half sister who tells him about his family tree he did not know it apparently his mother didn't talk much or maybe she didn't know much but uh he, he did not know about his 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 whole his, his the aforementioned of Yosef Vialer and his yichus and his family, but this aunt that he meets in Hanau, I think, in Germany, he meets uh, the aunt, who, an older woman, and she fills him in and tells him the whole family tree, which is brought out in great detail in the, in the Ravid edition. So get okay. back to Holland. Yeah, so then he gets to Holland, and then he's in Arnhem and Amersfoort. I don't know if pronouncing these names right, but he meets uh, David Meldola. David Meldola is a big Talmud Chacham, Farim, I think with two of them. But uh, the, the, Raviv tries to like play this away, but this is uh, maybe talk about the Chida, what what happens over here. The Chida, right? You know, the Chida respects him. He calls him. He, he refers to him with uh, with a Ches and a Reish, which is a Chacham, Rabbi David Maldola. He refers to him respectfully, but he makes no bones about the fact that he does not believe 
that the Rebdavid Meldola's feelings towards him are genuine. Rebdavid Meldola comes to meet him and tells him, oh, he's so glad to see him. I came just to meet you. Chidah writes, he doesn't believe that. The real reason Rebdavid Meldola came was to sell his safer. And, and this is an interesting facet of the times for bibliophiles out there. And, and, and Rebbe Yaakov Emden discusses this also. Uh, a contemporary author writing his own safer. They didn't have central bookstore. They didn't have Amazon. You couldn't order it through Nachi's podcast. The way to get a safer then was to get your safer out was to go around and pedal it. And it involved a small amount of uh, flattery as well, because you, you you take your safer to important people and expect them to buy it for you and give you a compensation for it. So he says the reason Rebdavid Meldola came was to sell his safer and jump on the bandwagon where the chidah is going around anyway to important people, and they're going to have to receive the chidah favorably. This is a way to get his foot in the door and also sell his safer. And the chidah is very, uh, very displeased with that. He says, you're taking advantage of, of my shlichus, and not like that, you're harming my shlichus, because you know, they, they, won't, they can't give as much money to me if they're going to also have to give another mashallah. So the chidah really makes no bones about it, that he was not at all pleased, but he does say that to his face, he made sure... And it was very hard for him, he writes, but he made sure never to get into any open confrontation with this Rabbi Moldola, especially because he was hosted in Rabbi Moldola's house when they did reach Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had to play it really, play a very fine line. He says, I had to engage in politics and do his best. And again, he gives thanks to Hashem that he was successful in not causing any machlikas uh, with this Rabbi Moldola. I will mention here, it's, it's, it seems that the Hama'or edition, with their concern with Lashon Hara, it seems that they were particularly concerned in this instance, and that's why they tried to obscure the name a little bit. They present the Rashi Tevis a little different. Instead of Reish Dalad Mem for Rabdav Maldol, they write Reish Reish Samach, which is unlike them. And they, you know, so we can get into that another time, but it seems like they, they, this was one bit of Lashonara they couldn't make it go away, so they had to obfuscate the details. So he comes to Amsterdam, Amsterdam uh, famous Spanish-Portuguese community, where Sephardi community, where he did, there's also a community, but especially in Sephardi community, he was really well received. And he, he even goes through here where he was each Shabbos. He says how he was by this Gvir and that Gvir, and he, he says each Shabbos he was by uh, one Shabbos by Senor Yaakov Nunez Enriquez, and one Shabbos by Senor Shmuel Buano de Mesquito. I'm sure I'm butchering the names. I just want to relay what one Senor, one his Senor of Abraham de Vega. He's going through each one is Senor this, Senor that, and every Shabbos of where he was for Shabbos. And these are all very important people, and uh, because these these Western communities left a very good literary record, uh, Raviv, in his edition, is able to track down who these people are and what their position in the community was. When they lived, and uh, and he does a great job of you know introducing you to each and every one of these people mentioned by the Chida. Right, he says the God lastly agvir agvirim vachachomim vahayli ahuvim harbe, and he goes through and about kulam is Senor Yaakov Nunez Enriquez. He goes through all of them. So uh, it, interesting. One part of Amsterdam that's really interesting, I think, is a personal story that he relays on his way to to davening. He says, "Hitzli maves nafshi." One morning, you know, I'll relate a little bit much if you want to mention also. He's going in the morning. He woke up early. To go to shul, the, the beautiful shul, which Raviv has a lot of pictures, which we'll get into. It's and uh, anyone know the Amsterdam shul is, is still there today, a beautiful, massive shul. And he says it was far away, and he had to go a couple bridges. And you know, people feel like Amsterdam, and he went through it, and it was it was cold. And it, it was, was cold. Not only was it cold, this is a notoriously cold winter, which is documented in other sources. This was a particularly cold winter where they would even, where the where the rivers had frozen over to the point where public fears were held. In the in, in the river, which is you know in other cities as well in the, in that in that region, and uh, very very notoriously freezing freezing cold winter. And he des- and he describes how 
There's no way, you know, there was no way to find the, the proper path anymore because it was covered with ice. So he was gingerly making his way towards the shul. It was early in the morning. And then suddenly, as he's about to get to the shul, and, was it and even before that, he says that there was icy, but there was a thin layer of snow that fell. You know what happens in the morning. It's very icy. It's freezing. But the little snow fell, so you couldn't even see the ice, really. Continue, yeah, continue right. the rest of the story. That's right. And he says, but then a coach was rushing by. Maybe it was a sleigh rushing by, and he tried to dodge out of the way. He remembers dodging, says the Chida, but that's the last thing he remembers. The next thing he remembers, he's, he's in the shul, and people are hovering over him and trying to revive him and, and, and wake him up. Um, he apparently suffered a concussion. Well, he didn't know how to describe it then. But and to his terrible shock, he found that he could not speak. He had lost his, he could see, he could read the sitter, but he couldn't no, speak. No, he says he couldn't see the sitter. Oh, he couldn't see. Yeah, sorry. he says it, but that's why I think it's a concussion. He says, it the sitter, his, his, he says, I couldn't see. He says, he said, his neshama left him. Right, right. He, he, he says, he sat there and spoke. Right. So he mounted this reward of the place, yeah. he says he, he, which he must have had a mild concussion and the concussion went away. He's, I don't know if he followed the concussion protocol, but he was right back in the game. That's for sure. Yeah, and he actually, right after this, he says he dashed in Amsterdam. He says, with Shomra Isi, Sifra, Sifra, Noivel Tzvi, Hanitvas Betzina, which there's a whole, Kitzvah Tzvi, Sifra, Noivel Tzvi, that was published in the back of Yaakov Sifra, Tzvus, and that was the whole thing. It was ripped out and destroyed. So that he, he, he makes mention uh, that he saw it. So that's, this is something over here. Um, and, then he, and then he goes to England. There's another interesting story, but uh, I don't think else want to mention Holland or England. In England uh, is uh, another, uh, un, you know, an unfortunate episode, which he was Baruch Hashem saved from. He discusses how shortly after arriving in Harwich on, on the eastern coast of England, he had, you know, shortly after he arrived there, he needed to relieve himself. So he tried to go away from people and the spot that he chose, he felt wasn't private enough. So uh, he... He said, let me climb over this stone fence that this ancient stone uh, you know, wall there. He tried climbing over, and to his dismay, there was no firm ground on the other side. It was a cesspool, and he was hovering, he says, between life and death, terribly disgraced, <laughs> dirty, and crying for help. Finally, some Gentile woman heard his cries and called the wagon driver, and they managed to rescue him, although his clothes could not be saved, he writes. But uh, thankfully, he was uh, rescued from that very precarious situation. Yeah, so that's uh, really, again, uh, just, just uh, we'll get to this at the end, but it's just amazing, besides for everything else, just to see these personal, intimate stories of, of a god, one of the Gedolim in the past few hundred years. I mean, it's all the Chidal was, was Mamash, the Gedolim, and you're seeing these personal anecdotes and stories that he's relating. It's just amazing to see. Um, but then he gets it. There's a really fascinating story in, in England and London where Raviv in his footnotes does talk a little bit about it. He does alluding to it with the shechita. There's a bit of a, of a controversy that he doesn't want to eat. And actually he teaches himself shechita. He teaches himself how to become a shechit on uh, birds, especially because he at this point doesn't trust the uh, kashras of the community. Well, part, yeah. So the, 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 he does not get into a lot of detail there, the chida, but he does talk about how he had, he had letters of recommendation for some rabbinical figure. But he wasn't sure what position that rabbinical figure had in the community, and he asked around, and they informed him that the, the fig, the, you know, the person that he had this recommendation for was not, you know, not well liked in the community, and was not the rabbi at all. 
So uh, he, he said he was he was smart enough and fortunate enough that he didn't take it out, which would have caused, you know, damaged his mission by casting him together with the with, the, you know, a party that was not 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 uh, well liked at the time. And uh, so the background to this story is um, just a, a thumbnail sketch, which you can look at. There's, there's source material there, which you can look up. And actually, it's referenced for it's an English article first referenced in the Fryman edition. But it summarizes it that um, this is the son of uh, Rabbi David Nieto, the, the Matedan, his son of Yitzchak, Chacham Isaac Nieto, who was the rabbi, had a tough time uh, enforcing the rule of halacha against the will of some of the more strong-minded lay people there, and he had resigned his position, which is why the Chidah says that that's the background for the Chidah saying he did not know who was the rabbi at the time, because the, you know, the main rabbi had resigned. And um, at the time, there was another scholar from, from Turkey, Rabbi Yaakov Kimchi. And Rabbi Yaakov Kimchi was an influential rabbinical figure in the community, and Chiva loves him. He says he's a great friend of his, and he, says he talks with very laudatory terms about this Rabbi Yaakov Kimchi. This Rabbi Yaakov Kimchi was instrumental in, in pushing uh, a shaykhet that was not the community-appointed shaykhtim, but this is a shaykhet that they can rely on. So this is a, this is a catalyst for fights in uh, probably the, the single biggest catalyst for communal fights in, 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 in recent memory is the Shechita fights. And so that you had the fight here. The interesting twist here being that the, the less reliable Shechtim claimed to be fulfilling the Sephardi Shechita and not using, and uh, serving only glot kosher uh, animals. While the other Shechit said, it's not possible that you're serving them glot kosher animals, so you must be fudging it a little bit. And better to serve shechita, which is not glat, but at least it's kosher. And that was the, the big fight here. This fight later was, uh, this Rabbi Yaakov Kimchi put together a pamphlet, which he sent to Europe for, uh, to get rabbinic support for his position. And he chose to publish it in the city of Altona, which is where Rabbi Yonas and Apeshitz was uh, residing. And that was enough to, for, to make Rabbi Yaakov Emden very suspicious of him. So Rabbi Yaakov Emden, whose son was another rabbi of the breakaway shul, the, Hambro, the, the Hamburg shul in uh, London, he brought this matter to his father, Rabbi Yaakov Emden's attention. And Rabbi Yaakov Emden came out very, very strongly against this Rabbi Yaakov Kimchi. So you have the Chida supporting him, and you have, at the same time, you have Rabbi Yaakov Emden on the other side of the discussion. In London, he also goes to, as he says, he the middle Shakarin Turi Tower. He goes to the Tower of London, and he says, I think there was the menagerie over there, right? So he says, "V'sham Reisi Arayas V'nesher Ben Meyashana, hundred-year-old eagle V'chatul Me India God will kill it V'chatul Acher Klayim Mechaya." I guess maybe it was a leopard. I don't know. V'chayis Acheres Mavhilus V'shashel Shu Barzel behind. He was in the zoo, and he says, "Wow, they were behind the the bars." And then he goes on, and we go. He he goes on. We want to talk about. He goes to the armory, and he just goes on and on. He's describing again. He was like amazed by this. It is amazing, and uh, it, it's particularly interesting to compare this account. This is a great firsthand historical account of what the London Tower, which is still a major tourist attraction to this very day, at the time in the 1700s, it was as well a, a big tourist attraction. And to compare the Chidas contemporary accounts. With other contemporary accounts and see how they line up. It's a fascinating uh, discussion for another time. But uh, suffice it to say that the Chidah's uh, descriptions are perfectly on point and accurate. Again, there's a Melitza there, and you got to figure out what exactly he means. But it's it, it is it is very enlightening to you know the, this this eagle that he says is 100 years old. In other accounts, that he also described 
you know, in, in contemporary accounts, they say they had this eagle here upwards of 90 years. And uh, again, in, 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 you know, given the conditions of the time, information then wasn't as uh, fact checkable as it is today. So it was there for a very long time, very old eagle. I think today the, the oldest uh, eagle on record is 40 years. You know, nothing, nothing made it that long, but uh, this, is, this is what they believed at the time. Yes, and eventually continues traveling, and again, there's a lot more here that we're not getting to, of course, but we're just trying to give a snapshot. He comes to Paris, and he's his uh, Yaakov Rodriguez Pereira, and uh, when he discusses, he mentions how he, you know, he invented an invention of sign language. And he's, Yaakov Pereira himself shows shows the chita, demonstrates his his uh, it's it's like a a, a pre a, a pre modern uh, Helen Keller. Which uh, he, there was an actual an actual child there, who was uh, a deaf mute, and the Chida writes that the Yaakov prayer had taught this child to communicate. The Chida says the voice sounds like a wild animal because they don't know how to use their voice properly. But it, it was an amazing trick. And he says this uh, this Yaakov prayer even had a letter from the king recognizing him for inventing this uh, this this tremendous tremendous making this tremendous advancements in this field. Yes, he talks a lot about that. Um, at a certain point, he comes to Bordeaux, which has a very, again, a Spanish-Portuguese community. And he says over there, they were so excited uh, to see him. They had a kisa shalyad. They had like a bed. They came to carry him, like, a, you know, pick him up, like a, just to carry him. Uh, um, what, what would you call it? Uh, and and to, to bring him. And he went there. I think I think there maybe he spoke. Some some places he spoke in shul, I think, so maybe over there. He gives an accounting where he speaks. You know, that was another one of the significant things. Uh, that the Chida records in his journals is the where he spoke and when, and he, and he lists in one in one city in, in France where he spoke thirteen different times, and he uses a very flowery phrase to describe the number of the speeches and describe what kind of speeches they were. So that was very significant there. Yeah, he actually writes about the community here. He says, and he talks about it there. They really gave him, they really machabed him uh, very much. And he talks a lot about it over there where they, where they, where they uh, really wanted him to speak. And he discusses some of his daily conversations with these people. And again, he shows you his, uh, his, the nuance and sensitivity of his personality. He talks about how these people were not, they had trouble uh, accepting certain uh, agadis at face value. And the Chidai writes, and I was careful when I was in these places, I wouldn't speak agadis that, that sound like wild exaggerations. And I was certainly never spoke any Kabbalah with these people. So you see he was sensitive to that, which is very interesting. And they point this out in the footnotes in uh, Sefer Hasidim. It's this. It, it's you know one of the items in Sefer Hasidim is do not tell over agadis wild, which sound like wild exaggerations. Do not tell those over to Ame Arts. Don't tell it over to, to people who can't accept it because that will cause them to view with distrust the entire you know work of Chazal. So the Chida writes there in a comment. He says, "When I was on Shlichus Mitzvah, when I was on my when I was on my mission, I fulfilled this. I didn't know about the Sefer Hasidim at the time, but by but I, I, I came to the same conclusion through my logic. And uh, here we have corroboration. This is, he was referring to this episode in, in France where he, just, where he talks about the kind of conversations with he had and how he, how he gently suggested to these people that they can accept other fantastical things. They shouldn't have a problem accepting uh, Chazal's things as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, where, he came, where he went to another city in France, uh, he says, oh, Vinish, Vinish Shati, he, he enjoyed uh, Sefer Elam and Nishmas Chaim. He was learning from... Uh, Yashar Mikandia and Menashe Israel, like that's he says he was enjoying these far places. He had different svarim. He would go through these different svarim. Um, at a certain point, he comes to um, 
Provence, South France, he's in Avignon, and these are communities, these four communities mainly, that they have their own Nusach, they're totally different from really any other communities over there. There are some famous ones that are no- notably Mordechai Karmi, right? The Maimur Mordechai and Shulchan Aruch is one of the very famous Tamidachachamim from, from Provence. Obviously there was Gedelim from Provence, the Miri and the Raivid and the Balamar and the Tufas Rishayim, but in the Achrayim, and he talks about uh, Avignon and and these other communities. With well, Mordechai Karmi, he, the, the, you know, he doesn't mention him in the first journey. Apparently he was a very little kid at the time, but in the second time he arrives here in the 70s, then already he makes the acquaintance of Ramor Hakarmi, and, and, and initially they have a very wonderful relationship, which later turns sour, but we'll save that for another time. Yeah, for, for a different episode, for, for the next one. Um, and then at, at a certain point he's there, and there's a massive flood, there's massive flooding, and that's what he says the 91 times he tries to, and he gives Tzedakah, he says he has a dream, that he has Tzedakah, Tzedakah, Tatsumi Mabes, and he gives Tzedakah, and there's a whole massive flooding in the end, the he, community He saves. gives Tzedakah to the mayor Balanes, right. and, uh, you know, it's funny, in one of the, in, in the, in the English edition, in the Zimmerman edition, he says that there's Ramir Balanes, it's, it's a legend, we don't really know who it is, uh, who's this, uh, legendary mayor Balanes? But he neglects to mention that the school of Rameir Balanes is mentioned by the Chida in a number of places. The Chida says this is a, it's a Rameir of the Tana and it's based on the Gemara, which says, and he, he says this is a, it's a mid, it's a widespread minig in Israel to donate to Rameir Balanes, you know, his chus in the times of Tzara. And obviously you see here the Chida practiced the, exactly what he preached. And that's what he did and that's how he served. So, and uh, he doesn't make a big deal about it, but he credits, uh, you know, right after he finished performing the school, that is when the rain stopped and the community at large was speared from the flood. Right. So he says, he, he says, the level of the Shabbos Kodesh was uh, in, in, in the, and he was dozing off. And he says at the end, he goes through his whole thing, him and Shabbat, Shmuel ben Chaim. He was Nifter at the end, but this is who was with him. He's like uh, assistant. And he says, they said, 91 times, they were, they were crying. And he says, after Chasay's 24 solados, the Tzedakah, for him and the whole Kal Kodesh is sold to Lenishmas Rameir. As he says, he gave a little bit of money for a mayor and he was giving uh, tzedakah. So um, from there, he ends up going to Italy. Um, and I believe this is where he recounts, right, that he travels through the snow. This where he recounts that he travels through the Alps and the snow was, was all the way high and he was wearing multiple layers of clothing and it was freezing. He goes through the whole traveling in the winter. He talks about, he says, he says a crazy number about why it was. It was something like 100 feet by <laughs> the snow. They had rolled through the snow. He had a hard time, but thankfully he made it to the other side in one piece. And that, uh, this is the return, you know, loop on his way back through, uh, through Italy, on his way to Turkey and uh, to wrap up his trip. Right, he goes through Italy, again, just rushing through this. And yeah, the real interesting part of it here, he mentions different communities in Italy where he goes through other communities, um, but then he gets to Turkey, and the really interesting part is, like you said, he mentions the coronation, the sultan dies, there's a new sultan, and he goes through, he went, and he saw exactly what happened, he relates the entire process. He says over the whole procession, how they came out, and what they did, and what they did, distributed, and they gave money, and, they, and the sword, and which sword they used, and which mosque they took him to, first this one, and the other one, you get the sense that this is a real live, he's reporting live on this Event, and I don't know if I don't know if uh, an, an account like this exists anywhere else. So this is of great historical value. I think on him and maybe the, there was the one in, in Italy. He says he made a bracha, right? He made a bracha. The Melech was making a bracha. So I, I believe he says here also. So it would it, very interesting. So that is one of the preoccupations of that the Chidah does have is uh, you know one one of the reasons he does 
you know, go on these uh, tourist excursions is to afford himself the opportunity to make these these brachas and see these sites, which are important. In the Raviv edition, he says also, you know, it's it's the Chida just, you know, being a good guest, and he's taken with his hosts to sightsee, so he goes sightseeing. However, though, in, uh, it's it's clear from the enthusiasm that the has is that he was just enamored with with the processing of of, of, of this information and that he was able to uh, obtain firsthand by seeing all these sites and going to all these places. One of the things he mentions over and over and over again are the gardens. You know, living in the old city in Yerushalayim, you don't see very many trees or grass. And he was and he was totally enamored by the elaborate manicured gardens and botanical gardens and other, you know, parks that he describes in Turkey and in other royal residences that, they, that had these uh, gardens. And he's totally enamored with it. You know, that's very important to him to note. Yeah, so although we pulled out some parts and gave a somewhat of a of a picture of, of what the safer is about. There's there's Tyrant here, there's other things in here that we and then just some of the entries are just literally I went from here to here and from here to here and he collects some of the just basic entries. So let's talk a little bit about the, the two new additions for those interested. So there's this it's kind of a coffee table size, let's call it a little smaller. Uh basically a coffee table size with glossy pictures and colored pictures. Um, someone put it to me, it's the uh, auction catalog edition, almost of the Raviv edition, where there, there's literally pictures, he tried to get historical pictures of these cities and of the manuscripts that Hida was, was talking about, or people reference them, and there's, there's just multiple pictures, there's also extensive notes on here. Sometimes we can talk about a little goes off, a little too far. Uh, and the other part that's very important is Melitza. We mentioned that Hida uses a lot of Melitza, flowery language based on Psukim and other things. And here, there's two separate, so there's the footnotes and the pictures, and then there's also the translation of the Melitza. Some of it is sourcing it, and some is translating it. So that's what the Raviv edition. And what's also very nice is on each part where it says, you know, on, on the side of each page, it'll be in a different color, Eretz or Italia, or France. So it tells you, you can just flip to that part. Whereas, and this is just, but again, this is just the first, mainly what we've been discussing, 1753, 1758. The Hamar edition, which came in, literally a week later, has both of the trips, plus it has a new saver, Khan Sipra, I think, from manuscript. And they included, they, again, they're doing, they didn't finish, but they did most of the set of the Kisechida. They included their introduction. So their complete introduction to all and Mavoy and the history of the whole Chida is in the back of it as well. So it's a pretty big volume. And they have more, it's more of a standard kind of a safer, but more of a basic footnote, such as the basic overview. So now, what, what can you tell the listeners about what you discovered, you know, between the editions, the discrepancies and differences between, you know, just w- what each one has to offer. Okay, so uh, I, I went through a carefully, uh, careful page-by-page uh, page comparison, and I also checked it against the manuscript, which is freely available online now, and uh, it's, 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 both of these volumes are, are superb, and in, in different ways, you know, the, the strengths of one are, are not the strengths of the other, so they kind of complement each other. But let's first talk about the Raviv edition, we've been discussing that one. The Raviv edition, this album edition, is it just it's just it's a beautiful superb piece of work and the pictures and, and the documents that are and, and the explanations and the identifications the notes which explain what happened you can see that this that this fellow has a perfect uh, understanding of what's going on he really really understands the chida he's understanding what the chida is trying to give over and very importantly he can decipher the malitza and the chida has a unique style of malitza the chida would use words from a pasuk which sounds similar to the words he wants to say so you kind of have to know what he wants to be saying. It doesn't help to know the Pusik because he'll sometimes change a letter of the Pusik, which is the style of Melitza. And then uh, and, and just and, and you have to understand where he's going and what he's trying to convey with this Pusik. 
often, but not always, the content of the Pasuk he's quoting or the Gemara that he's quoting does have some relevance, but not, not necessarily. It's important to understand the words that you should anticipate him using, and then you'll understand why he's using a, a, a fragment of a Pasuk instead. And it, it takes real, real know-how to understand, what, A, what the Chida source was, you know, which, which words is he is he not, not corrupting, but which words is he altering? You know, which, what is his source? And what does he mean to say with the source? And that's not really, really not an easy task. And it's a, it's a very important and commendable work that Raviv has done in deciphering all that Melitza. So that's, uh, that's one of the, you know, just some of the advantages of the Raviv. Uh, the Hama'ar, in a maybe somewhat condescending fashion, they write in their introduction that they are not going to occupy themselves with explaining the Melitza for the reason that Talmud the Chachamim don't need that help, and Amaratzim really shouldn't be reading this book anyway. Amaratzim only want to see, they want to take out from this book things which are not important. They want to take out some derogatory information. They want to take out the tangential information. It's not important. They don't have the right reasons for learning the Sefer. We don't need to help them read it. We're only going to help with Talmud the Chachamim. And again, Talmud the Chachamim don't need help with the Melitza, which is a fallacy, first of all, Talmud the Chachamim. Do need help with the Melitza, and very often, very often, but at times... I was able to discern that the editors themselves didn't get the Melitza. Sometimes they say, they, you know, you can see that they, they weren't completely sure of it either. So it's, it's uh, in, in that sense, the Raviv edition certainly has the advantage. Now, as far as uh, hewing to the manuscript, they both claim to be copying, uh, you know, this edition is not just a reprint of the first edition. This is, they went back to the manuscript and this is printing it from the manuscript. In that sense, the Hama'ar claim is correct, besides for that example I mentioned earlier, where I think they specifically didn't, but in, in generally the Hama'ar will supply lines that are missing, lines that were that were just totally skipped by the original scribe, uh, and they supply that missing line based on the manuscript, or, or they'll read words better. Uh, Raviv often does not have those. Towards the end of the book he gets better, but not. It's he cannot claim to be uh, coming off the manuscript. So in that sense, uh, the Hamar is better. Now, as far as that little helpful feature on the side of the pages where in the Raviv edition it tells you where it is, and it's color-coded, so it's easy to find, the Hamar edition has on their top header, they have uh, what year it is. They don't say where it is, but they say when it is. So you, both together would be very helpful to know what year it is and where you are. So each edition focused on a different part of the work. Again, but the Hamar edition is much more all-inclusive. It has a lot more, they have some of these ledgers, they supply information from those manuscript ledgers and they even produce some small works that weren't included in those, in those journals. So it's, a, it's, a, it's very important to have, a, if you want to get a full picture, I think it, it is important to have both of these editions. Yeah, also Raviv, the first of his name is Asaf Raviv, that's why we're playing Raviv, uh, but uh, he also, something that's nice is when there's a city, the Chida mentions a lot of times, not always, a lot of times they'll put the English spelling inside the footnotes. You'll be able to see, if you're not familiar with the Hebrew spelling of the Chida, you'll be able to see it on the bottom. Now that feature is it's, it's a good feature and it's updated, so it, it is important work, but for largely that work was done by in, in the Friedman edition. But Hamar doesn't have Hamar it. Hamar leaves it out. So, so Hamar leaves it out. So again, if you're buying Hamar and someone, especially if someone is a native English speaker, it would be nice to know where these places are, you know, with the English spelling, not just trying to figure out what the Hebrew spelling is. Um, again, the notes and the pictures are 
nice, but sometimes it's overkill. So uh, I'm looking at a page here. He's talking about Ancona. He says, oh, here, you know, here's a picture of the cemetery in Ancona. Or so, you know, he's mentioning a lot of times what he'll, what he'll do is the Chidam mentions he met Rabbi so-and-so in this city. And I'll say, oh, either they have a picture of him or he'll show you this is a manuscript that he wrote or a safer of his that he wrote. So it's nice, but sometimes it's a little overkill. Uh, some, so I don't know what the decision was. Some cities, he tries to take historical pictures or drawings from the time that Chida was there. And sometimes he's giving you modern pictures. And sometimes both. So I'm not sure what the editorial decision was there. Sometimes, again, again with the, with the shuls, different uh, synagogues. Sometimes historical pictures, sometimes not. I think whatever he, what is available. He, he's tried to fill it up with as much, uh, you know, illustrations as he can. Right. A full disclosure, I went through the entire Revive edition. I really enjoyed it. To me, it was a real pleasure to read. I, I personally would recommend this one and 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 that would that 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 would be because just the hamar is very nice and again i think realistically someone should get both um the Revit one is like 60 dollars plus depending we find it the hamar one is more like 30 dollars so it's a difference um and the hamar you get the full thing the Revit you only get half but but just for the translations a little bit of the melitza and the sources and then the extensive footnotes you get, you get a more of a full picture of the story i think in the Revit edition with the pictures it makes it more of a nice read but if you're not someone that wants more of a book you know and i had no problem taking this to shul and using it but it, it is bigger and it's more unwieldy and it's you know a bigger kind of thing but again they're both very nice that more also is a uh, very nice and it's very nice that we have Two new editions. Amar will also will give you the beer bones uh, background, but often not enough. In other words, the Chida relies on you. You know, he's writing for a contemporary who understands the workings of the Kehila and, and, and the inner dynamics of meeting this fellow and having to get permission from that fellow. A lot of these things uh, he takes for granted, but the Ravid painstakingly discusses exactly what is how it was working and what was supposed to happen and what did happen. And that's it's it's invaluable to understanding the the full experience, right? I think sometimes that Mariv does try to spend the Melitza, but again, it's not nearly as much as what the Revit does. But again, like you said, unfortunately, you both have to get both editions to really be mashlim. I heard maybe someone's working on another one, so but that's really the way to get it. Another thing, one more thing to mention about like the manuscript. So each one, the Chida used so Arabic numerals, meaning he didn't write. I'm looking here, Shvat twenty. He didn't write Chaf Shvat. That's not how he wrote. He wrote twenty. But interestingly, in the manuscript, this is how he wrote it, Shvat 20. So Hamar did, did two things. First of all, they uh, flipped it. So they have it as Chaf Shvat, and they also put it as Chaf. They got rid of the Arabic numeral. They, they, they decided that they are going to do it with uh, Hebrew, which is, you know, again, not being true to the manuscript, that's not what the Chida did. Now, in the times of Haskalah, there what became a sensitivity to, you know, in Balazhin, the, the Mashkiach was under orders, a safer that was numbered in, in uh, Latin or Roman numerals, get rid of those. But a safer that was in Hebrew numbering, you could keep that. So maybe they maybe they have that 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 uh, archaic sensibility. But obviously, that's an anachronism when it comes to the Chida. One more thing about the Raviv edition. So they both have nice introductions to the actual safer. Raviv in the back, uh, you just mentioned this. He he has I don't know why he felt the need to include. We talk about it. he puts in my Raviv stiku es atzadik. So this uh, this essay at the back of the at the end of this uh, Raviv edition is concerned with one question, and that question is where did the Chida stand on this controversy which tore apart Europe, the Rabbi Yaakov and Rabbi controversy, and it's responding to an earlier attempt at at, at this question made by uh, the, the Rabbi in Columbus, Rabbi Casilio de Greenwald, a famous Rav, an American Rav, and uh, 
famous historian, particularly of Hungarian Jewry, and uh, an uh, author of a biography of Rebianus and Apeshitz. In that biography of Rebianus and Apeshitz, which is uh, obviously very in, uh, in favor of Rebianus and Apeshitz, so Rabbi Greenwald makes the claim that the Pnei Yeshua, by telling the Chida his side of the story, poisoned the Chida against Rebianus and Apeshitz. And he feels that's why that's why the Rebbeinu Sanhedrin gets very little press in the Chida's writings, and that's why although Rabbi Yaakov Emden is granted a very laudatory entry in the Shem Agdolim, that's the Chida's Sefer, which lists the rabbis, Rabbi Sanhedrin gets a, a small mention in you know not even in his own entry, and you know tangentially in another entry. So the the, the Rabbi Greenwald feels that the Chida had taken you know the the, the Pneshu had influenced the Chida to accept. His version of the facts, which he finds uh, regrettable, and uh, that's what Rab, uh, the Raviv edition is responding to that with this long essay, saying that that's certainly not the case. Um, in fact, uh, it's the Chida who disdained Machlaikis. He avoided the region. He, he didn't. He did not travel to Hamburg, even though he was in Germany for a while. It was one of the very important communities, also an important uh, a community with an important Spanish Portuguese presence. Neither of them note that. But that is an important factor. We know that the like, like we mentioned earlier, the pattern of the Chida's success did have to do with his finding support in, in these communities. But he did avoid that entirely because that was the epicenter of, of, of this controversy. And, and we have testimony that has it on hearsay from the Chida that that's why he, the reason he avoided the area was because he was trying to stay out of the fight. So, and, uh, but the one very important thing that Raviv does point out is he went and consulted the original manuscript for Shem Agdolim, and he discovered that in that manuscript, the Chida actually gives a bigger. He does mention the. Uh, the he does mention Rebbeinu Sanhedrin, and actually gives him more praise than the entry for for Biakovemdin. Now that manuscript was later published in 1770s in the first edition, and in the first edition, both of those entries are left out. There's no entry for Biakovemdin and no entry for Rebbeinu Sanhedrin. And later in the 1780s, when it's republished. That's where we have the current state of affairs lies with Rebbe getting a very big uh, entry and Rebbe Yosef is getting a relatively small one. He himself cannot describe uh, what the reason for that is, but speculations about his own speculation is that he felt that if he would support one or the other, that would damage his shlichus. And that's why uh, Rebbe Yosef Emden, nobody uh, was accusing him of anything, so he could support Rebbe Yosef Emden. Rebianus and Apeshitz, who was accused of various complaints, which which we you you've discussed in other podcasts. So if he would if he would come out in his favor, he would lose potentially would would hurt his cause of the shlichus. I find that uh, unbelievable because uh, just the history of the fights, the 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 people with the money, the lay people, the lay leaders, uh, largely supported uh, Rebianus and Apeshitz. You didn't have anything to fear from if you were on that side of the fight. It, the opposition was largely rabbinic. And uh, Rebianus and Apeshitz was able to win and, and hold his position because of the support he had from the lay leaders, like we mentioned earlier. That's why the Panayashu was forced out of his rabbinic seat in Frankfurt. So I don't, I don't find that so credible. Well, I, I think it may have to do with um, the purpose in writing Shane Magdalene, but again, that's, that's a discussion for another time. But that's the essay at the end of the book. Yeah. Uh, something I don't know how we forgot about this. Um, this uh, article that you wrote in Yishurin about the the Magotayim, and that is on page fifty three in the in the Rav edition when he comes and the Chida goes to Padua, and uh, Ramchal Moshe Lutzato lives. He literally just says he was there by his hat. You know, it's a la kuf Lutzato. He writes a kuf, 
And then, like, he hardly makes, first of all, he doesn't really mention Rokhal at all. And he just goes about Kuf, which is very, everybody's harav. It's very interesting that he's at Kuf. What is Kuf? So what is and Kuf? What's going on with Rokhal over here? Right. And, uh, and I was pleased to see that both of these editions did get it right, what Hakuf means. The, the Zimmerman English edition believes what people did believe for a while that Hakuf meant like it does, you know, when it's used by Ashkenazim. Ashkenazim would write Hey Kuf, particularly Hasidic Rebbe's. Hey Kuf means the, the holy one, the sainted, Hakodesh. Uh, so they assumed that he was talking about the Ramchal and calling him the sainted Lutzato. The problem is, he says he was in the home of this sainted Lutzato, and, and, and the Ramchal had been dead for 10 years already by the time the Chida was there. So, so Zimmerman uh, says perhaps his home had become a shrine, and that's a, it's a, a preposterous uh, theory. What it does mean, and both editions, uh, maybe in no small parts, maybe I deserve a little credit here, I don't know, but for writing the article. But in the article, I argued that Kuf is short, and it's used elsewhere in the Sefer, it's short for the Katsin. The, it's, it's, an, it's a term of, of importance. In, in, uh, in Turkey, he refers to important people as Jalibi, which is a Turkish term for important noble person, and uh, he uses Senor, where that's appropriate, and uh, nugget, where that's appropriate. And in, in Italy, the, the term uh, for an important person was a katsin. A rich, a rich important person was a katsin. And he's not referring to, uh, to Ramchal at all. He's referring to some other communal a lay leader, an important lay leader. And this lay leader shows up in other in other of the Chido's writings also. For the you know his contributions are listed. It's, so it's not it's not Ramchal at all. And what is interesting is he does mention having seen the uh, the letters, uh, you know, the the, the pulmas. The entire country, all the letters pertaining to the controversy, he did see, and those were those were published in, in this generation. He did see those, and there he does not refer to Ramchal with any, just refers to him as Mem Cheslamid, which without even the honorific rabbi. So that does maybe show something of uh, the Chila's position on that issue. But that's again, that's that's the discussion of, of that article I wrote in the issue. Right, and Raviv gets into that in his notes if you're discussing that, right? So uh, you mentioned a couple of times English translation. Um, it's not available and right as of now, um, and it is expensive if you come across it used, but do you want to just mention it briefly? It's, uh, it was put out uh, by the Sephardic Institute in Jerusalem. It's uh, by the Pinea Soccer Institute. It's uh, a very literal English translation, uh, which can, can be helpful, but it can also be very, very cumbersome because the Melitza, which are these fragments of Psukim, are translated, you know, straight up without giving you any sense of what, what these psukim are doing here. In English, they make no sense at all. And all these uh, Rashi Tevis that the Chidah use, these acronyms that the Chidah uses, are also presented there in transliteration. You know, so it's it's very cumbersome read. The notes are, you know, it's Fryman's notes translated in English with a little bit more. One In one example, he identifies a city which Fryman had misidentified. In northern France, he identifies it correctly, and that's uh, the Raviv you know, redraws the map. I mentioned that earlier to conform with the Zimmerman's observation. I don't think he credits him, but he probably got it from there. Um, but it, but uh, there's there's also some very gross errors and preposterous theories, like we mentioned. So it's a, it's an important work, but certainly uh, needs uh, needs a needs a it needs it needs uh, it needs a lot of help to be to put it up to where it needs to be. So in finale, in you know, closing, really. Why should someone read it? I, it's a kind of a, you know, almost rhetorical question because as we discussed, I hope a, a listener would be interested. It's a fascinating read, really. Uh, something really almost everyone should read. I, I think it's really amazing to see, like I said, one of the Gudeli Oilam uh, of the past few hundred years. Um, 
just if anyone's familiar with any of the Chidah's other works on Shulchan Aruch and his Chuvas and his Drushas and stuff, he's just every part of Torah he wrote on and he's just this is his personal intimate diary, his personal stories, his you know his successes and his struggles with collecting money as a shliach. It's just something a real. It's almost it is autobiographical, something that you don't really get. And you really get to see a lot of that. But, uh, you know, was that where you stand on this? What's your uh, take on this? I think it's, this checks all the boxes. I mean, people, any, almost anything you're interested in uh, in Judaic studies, uh, you'll have here. If you're interested in halacha, and uh, Eliezer Brutz has written articles in the Yeshurun, you know, examining the halachic aspects of Magotov, like when you make a bracha, what, what's bracha, and, why, and go see what, and see when. And people have, uh, you know, that's, you, you can mine it, and, and Amar actually has an index of halachic, uh, related themes that that are that are in, enhanced by by reading the Magal play. So if you're in, if you want if you're reading it for that, you'll be rewarded. If you're interested in bibliography, then it's it's a gold mine. This is a you know all the manuscripts he saw and the books that he's seen and the prints and, and he talks about even going to the royal libraries and then he compares the, the the one in Italy to the one in France. He says it's like it's it's like use a Gemara phrase it's 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 a fraction of the size and scope of the one he had seen in France and he discusses. He even discusses the, you know, the, the library uh, rules and regulations. On this day, the manuscript room is open. On this day, the printed room is open. So it's, uh, if, if you're interested in bibliography, it's fascinating. Historical value, understanding how the communities worked and when, and like we said, the Tower of London and other sites that he'd seen comparing the way it was in his description with other contemporary descriptions sometimes. He's the only one, like we said, with the coronation. So it's, uh, there's, there's, there's really something there for everybody. But, but like you said, Nahi, to me, um, this is it's 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 a rare portrait, a rare inside view to one of the Gedolei Hadar. The Chida is venerated in all circles as one of the Gedolei of his times. You know, in all circles, the Hasidim have him, and the Sfarim, of course, and the Ashkenazim, and Halacha, and Musar, and all the Sfarim that he's written. He's one of the most influential Gedolei of his time, and to have such an intimate understanding of of what he was like and what made him tick and, and what he thought about things and how he felt about things and how he expressed himself and how he lived and 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 you know it's a window into his mind it's such a rare opportunity and above all it's just a fascinating fascinating read so it's uh it checks all the boxes yeah he actually had one safer that his first safer he published during his trip is Shar Yosef which is the we safer on Hyrius really one of these farm areas and he he printed it and besides for Yosef on Shulchan Aruch and the Chubas Chaim Shal and the Shemak Dalem you know massive you know work so there's just so so much that he wrote like I said and you could get this portrait um and so we discussed the two editions and would you say is it for anyone? I know that Hamor has this condescending only for Tamid Chachamim kind of thing. Or you say that, you know, anyone really basically can pick it up and should be able to mostly read it. You'll get, uh, and this is kind of true of the Chidah's Malitz in general. Uh, again, if you, if you understand what he's saying, you know where he's going, you could kind of figure it out. You're not going to get everything, but you'll get, the, you'll get the idea. So even if you get the Hamor edition, which doesn't expend, you know, they, they have... They're busy sourcing all the Melitzas, but not explaining. And, and again, sourcing is secondary to explaining the Melitza because the source is very usually irrelevant to understanding it. But even if you get the Mar, which doesn't invest a lot, it's an accurate, it's an accurate, very, it's the most accurate rendition of the text. And uh, you'll get, you'll definitely get a sense. There's a lot to understand. And, and, and they do explain, you know, they do give a basic, crucial uh, understanding usually. So it's, it's certainly uh, re- will be rewarding uh, for anyone who picks it up and, and attempts to join the Chida on his voyage.
So I'll try to find links for both of them to put in the show's notes. Uh, just one last question for you, Maisha, a, t- a teaser kind of thing. Uh, those, especially if those interested, you can email me and uh, let me know if you'd be interested in doing another episode on the second uh, travel, the second part of Magal Test. Maybe we just want to mention like the second part here. The second part is longer, and the Chidah had already achieved uh, notoriety. He was a famous, very famous person now. And so it was a, he had, and he avoided Germany, like we mentioned. So it, it, his uh, journey takes a very, very different, very, it's, it's a very different read, the second journey. Um, and there, there we'll learn more about his family and about his son and the things that bothered him, things that worried him about his second wife. We'll learn more about other communities that he didn't visit in North Africa. So there's a lot more in that uh, second journey, a lot more to cover. And uh, yes, I would very much love to come back and uh, tackle that one. Okay. So hopefully this was uh, informative and enlightening uh, for the listeners. And uh, thank you very much once again, once again for joining me and this time to talk about the Ghidah and Magotai. That was my greatest pleasure, Nahi. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good one.